founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Emily Best, the founder and CEO of Seed and Spark, an education and crowdfunding platform for unique voices. Emily is a 21st century Renaissance woman. She studied to be a jazz singer in Barcelona, doubled the profit margin in multi-million dollar restaurants, worked with Morgan Stanley and Deutsche Bank at her first at her firm, Best Partners, as well as been in theater with production and acting throughout her entire career. In 2011, she produced her own feature film, Like the Water. These experiences all led to Emily founding Seed and Spark. She now is an advocate for diversity and inclusion in the entertainment industry and an advisor for companies and technology startups across the country. Emily, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you. It sounds crazy when you say it like that. It's kind of cool, right? I did an exercise at the end of the year because my mind was a mess from everything that's, that's happened this year, right? And one of the things that I did was actually go, something I'm not used to, I made a list of things I was proud of. And I sat there for like five minutes with nothing coming to mind. And I was like, it's got to be something. And then by the end, it was a list kind of like this, where I was like, oh my God, we never stop and actually say like, how cool that, you know, yeah. these things have, have happened or been accomplished or risks taken, right? Um, so it is cool for for the people on the podcast to get to hear someone else bring that to, the, to them. Um, so we read a little bit in the intro, uh, a little bit of your background, but I'd love just to hear from you. Uh, how, what series of events led you to doing what you're doing today? Um. I mean, insofar as literally everything in your life leads you to the moment that you're in. Um, if I'm going to pick a selection that's relevant probably to your listeners, it's that um, I never meant to be in the entertainment business. Um, and certainly the direction that Seed and Spark has taken now, which is as a SaaS company, um, I say that now, and 10 years ago, that would have sounded insane, or I guess 12, 15 years ago now, that would have sounded insane to mm. you know, restaurant Emily, right? Um, or even business consultant Emily, right? When we when when I was working with my dad and best partners, and um, and we were helping some of the largest banks, you know, manage their strategic thinking through the financial crisis, right? Wow. I was reading really different books than the ones that I'm reading now. Um, and interestingly enough, I because um, I've spent a lot more time in my mom's house lately. Uh, I found one of my college papers and I'm old enough that like w- once printed, that was it. Like, I don't have another record of them. So there's not like a Dropbox file. Like, I found <laughs> yes. paper and I'm like, wow, here's a, a treasure. Um, yeah. it, was for, it was for the literature review for my senior thesis where um, I was writing about, this was in the year 2000. And I was writing about this interesting phenomenon on the internet of these communities coming together and individuals oh. building profiles and sharing them with each other <laughs> and sort of bonding over these networks. But like, I never landed on the term social network because that wasn't a thing yet. No. Um, and I was what I was interested in was the ways in which the internet would empower communities of interest to become communities of practice, which is actually language mm-hmm that I I learned from my dad, who was like super early thinking about the internet with a company called Global Business Network that was in the East Bay, like way back in the day, they ended up getting acquired by Monitor Group long after my dad left. But it was was like an early part of of strategy and consulting that was also really interested in what would the internet mean 
to the world. Wow. And that I know really influenced my, my thinking. Um, so, you know, cut to whatever, 10, 10 years later. And, um, I was, I was making theater in New York, the, the cheap way. Let me be clear. I wasn't mm-hmm. like producing Broadway. I was like scrapping things together and seeing what we could get for free and then putting things on immersive theater. Nice. And, um, uh, I would get together this incredible group of women, um, and make, uh, a site-specific production of a play called Hedda Gabler, which if you're not a theater nerd will not sound familiar to you. It's an Ibsen play. It's like this Victorian era, Nordic kind of feminist play. Okay. Um, that is Hamlet for women, right? So, so it's oh, the funny. role that every woman of a certain age hopes to play at some point. And mm. the actress who was playing had a gabbler, brilliant actress named Caitlin Fitzgerald has now been on a gazillion TV shows and movies. She was just in the yeah. Chicago Seven film. Um, cool. uh, she's on Succession. Um, yes, I love I like, that show. I like bragging about her because she's one of my very best friends. She's a yeah. huge talent. Anyway, so we're making this this play. Um, producing it in a mansion, like this mansion that somebody had, we've convinced someone to loan to us for four weeks. Yeah. They were on, it was the summer. It was August in Manhattan. Um, so the mansions are empty. Everybody's out in their like Hamptons houses. And this, this really amazing woman loaned us her mansion for four weeks to host this place. We, had, we were playing to 38 people a night where the living room was where the people were sitting and it was the stage. So actors wow. were sitting next to the people and it was a secret location and New Yorkers fucking love secret locations. So we were sold out before we started. It got written up in the New York times. It was like a way bigger thing than I had ever done before. Um, But here was the thing that really happened to me that summer is that Caitlin star was starting to rise and she was getting auditions for like larger and larger independent movies. Right. And some bigger movies too. And at night she was coming and playing this head of gabbler, like this incredibly meaty, role that's very important to theater and during the day she was being asked to audition for pretty girl pretty girlfriend pretty best friend hot Mm. best friend sexy best friend you get the idea (laughs) and honestly it was the first time that I was like what the fuck are movies Mm. Uh, to me right now I'm like a I'm like a I was a I'm a privileged and well-educated white middle-class woman and all of a sudden I was looking up at the screen being like how they represent me is gross, right? Uh, and yeah. if I feel that way, I have to imagine I'm not alone. Yeah, and um, and so we, we we sort of raged about it after after shows. You 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 finish your theater and then you go get drunk. That's what you do. That's how theater works. Uh, and you you talk about you know philosophy and whatever. And we really were like, we need to change what's on the screen. And one of, and Caitlin, while we were all drunk, was like, I know, we'll make a movie. It's so easy, she said. (laughs) Um, And that was because she was working with this amazing filmmaker called Ed Burns, um, who was making one of the very first feature films ever shot on... a digital cinematic camera. He the the Canon 5D was the first um, picture camera to put a full frame sensor in it. And all of a sudden, in the summer of I think that was 2010, it was cheap to make a movie, mm, right, wow. and capture really high quality cinema imaging. Mm-hmm. That was also the same summer that crowdfunding started to rise out of the ashes of the financial crisis, and uh, distribution started to go digital. 
So you had this amazing, amazing confluence of things that happened between like 2008 and 2011 that completely changed the landscape of entertainment as much as entertainment was trying to resist it. Wow. Um, and so we saw an opportunity and we ended up um, making this movie, but instead of, uh, and we, it was really hard to raise money because people were like, well, who's an audience for a movie about women that doesn't have sex or relationships at the center? Mm, yeah. uh, which was sort of the core of the problem, right? It was of right. course hard to raise money or get attention for a movie that was really trying to do something else or represent women differently. Um, and so we decided to try our hand at crowdfunding, but instead of using one of these very new platforms called Kickstarter or Indiegogo, yeah. um, we wanted to give people a sense of what it would take to make the film. So we built a wedding registry and we, um, we listed the items that we needed, right? We needed camera rentals, right? We needed grip and gear rentals, but we also, because we're shooting in the summer, we needed bug spray and sunscreen and makeup and coffee <laughs> and all of those things. And we put it together and we sent it to everyone we knew. And we also sent it around the town where we were planning to shoot. And when I say that the community came around to make this movie, I cannot overstate it. So we needed to raise about $20,000 in cash. We raised 23,000 in cash from direct contributions, but hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans and gifts of locations and goods and services, right? Mm. So the movie looked a hell of a lot more expensive than it actually was at the end of the day. Um, and we had email addresses of the people who were contributing and 450 some odd people contributed to make, we have, our credits are so long. Um, but what we learned in that moment was not just what you could do when you told people what it would take and why you were making a movie. Um, but all of those meetings that was really hard for me to get with sales agents and distributors, when I had those 450 email addresses, they were like, wait, what? Wait, so what do you know about your audience? Oh, how interesting. And I was like, oh, you don't know actually shit about the audience. Yeah. But you yeah. are going on your gut instinct and industry standard. And now that I have actual data, you want it. Mm. How fascinating. That is. And that was wow. really the seed of the idea because for me, creativity, storytelling is about shifting power. Mm. Right. That's what representation is about. And I wanted a way to make creators um, to give creators the tools that they needed to use storytelling to shift power to their communities. And part of that is economic power. Right. So, yes, the visibility that you get right from your community when your story is on the big screen, that's money. Right. Mm. Um, being able to make a movie in your hometown, that's jobs. Right. That's resources that are staying in your community. So I think um, that was the that was the genesis. Right. Mm. Um, but over the years, of course, um, it's not just about getting something made. It's about getting it seen. And, and the first eight years of Seed and Sparkman, we threw everything at the wall around distribution at scale. Right. We wanted to be able to tell these stories from all over the country. Six more than there's now been more than twenty two, twenty three hundred projects crowdfunded on Seed and Spark from more than 600 cities, almost $30 million raised total for creators. Good God. Um, and uh, they came to us about two years ago and they said, we have a problem. Um, right now, most of distribution is marketed on social media and then streamed on streaming platforms. And both of those use totally opaque algorithms to decide who gets to see our content and who does not. 
Mm-hmm. The challenge with that is you better believe those algorithms are not built to like challenge your worldview or change right. your mind. Yeah. Actually, they're built to keep you in your like nice little cozy lane. So you stay on that platform and you continue to engage. Mm-hmm. So storytelling, which has always been like the uniquely human ability to connect across geography, across time, across distance, is now being thwarted by the very technology that is used to deliver it. Mm. And that became to us the biggest problem to solve. And it's a really hard problem to solve because how do you deliver your product at scale to people who don't necessarily identify as the audience for that work? Don't use social media. Don't use streaming platforms. Go. Wow. Right. And that was, so this is like late 2018. We're like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. (laughs) Like we could try to build a business in the entertainment business, but it started to feel false to us. So um, a really wise advisor of ours said, um, you know, the workplace is the most diverse place most people are in their lives. And about 200 million people go to work every day. Well, now about 150 million people go to work every day, but um, uh we started out on a research project to really understand what was happening in the workplace. And, and um, <clears throat> we started with diversity and inclusion professionals because they are the ones who view the workplace as a vector for cultural change and cultural progress, the same way our creators view their work as a vector for cultural change and cultural progress. And what we learned was companies were you know, sort of unilaterally in agreement that like good company culture makes more money but how do we get there? That's hard. And um, the truth is really inclusive practices oftentimes mean making decisions um, that don't feel immediately about the bottom line, right? But that oh, yeah. long term, 100% of the research shows accelerate your business resilience in crisis, that accelerate your profits, that accelerate your, like all the things. Right. Um but they, they all shared a really common set of problems around engaging employees in, um, in sort of inclusive behaviors and practices, in sourcing really important employee intelligence that was actually meaningful to then making strategic decisions and gaining strategic insights. And we felt like after the research project, we could use film to solve these problems. Wow. And so we built Film Forward, which we um, piloted in the fall of 2019. And it's a, a fairly simple education platform for, um, for employees where you, you log in, you watch a film, you go through a set of reflections and assessments, and then you land on some additional like curriculum and cultural literacy. Um, it's a soft skills training platform through an inclusive lens. Everybody needs soft skills at work. If you don't do it through an inclusive lens, you can actually actively harm and marginalize people because mm-hmm. what you mean when you say adaptability, what you mean when you say team player is really different if you're thinking about making sure it includes everyone than if you're trying to get them to conform to a very specific standard, which with all due respect, gentlemen, tends to be around a very specific like white male standard, you know, button down sure. collar shirt. <laughs> like the things, the things that we have decided are the sort of standard of professionalism that actually leave a lot of people out. Mm. So, um, so we piloted it in the fall of 2019 and the data results were really incredible. Um, we had big plans to launch in early 2020, um, COVID shutdown hit and we lost all of our revenue basically overnight. Um, because our, 
our creator side was about education and crowdfunding for film projects, all of which went away. Um, and our, um, our corporate side, like everybody froze their budgets. Right. And then um, in June of, of 2020, um, George Floyd was murdered. Breonna Taylor was murdered. Uprisings happened across the country. And of course that was, that was in the workplace. Cause those were the, the same people in the streets were in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and companies realized they really had to contend with this in a, in a real and meaningful way. Like those social media statements weren't cutting it anymore. And the employees were really the ones agitating from inside um, and saying this, this has to change. Things have to change. Um, and we got yanked into the marketplace really hard. Um, we built some, some racial justice modules. Um, we also discovered other ways we could leverage feature films for cultural events inside organizations that could help drive change. Um, and now what we have really is kind of, um, two companies inside one, and I'm very glad we're called seed and spark because I feel like that, that fits both of us, but we have the side of our business now that educates creators and helps them make their work using our crowdfunding platform. And now we have Film Forward, which delivers those films into the corporate workplace to maximize and measure the impact of that work. Wow. That's a lot, man. <laughs> uh, I have a, like a million questions for you. I'll start with the one that came to me last. Uh, and then maybe if I'm, if I'm a good enough interview, I'll remember the questions I had earlier. <laughs> Uh, but right there at the end, I'm so curious when you said we're able to uh, measure impact. How are you able to do that? And what are the kinds of things you're seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, <clears throat> one is we're able to measure how employees are kind of transitioning their views, right? As this, you know, they're they're reporting back to us what they're learning, how they feel about it. And we're getting better and better at kind of gathering those data points, um, but but really understanding how the individual is shifting their thinking. Mm. Um, but we also deliver up um, that aggregated data, and it's it's highly anonymized to the companies to give them the key strategic insights they need to make decisions. And the interesting thing is, like this takes a lot of forms. So in one company, it was that um, one module helped them identify a step in their onboarding process that was um, effectively discriminating against gender non-binary and trans people Mm. Um, because they were being forced in their their, uh, benefits enrollment to make a binary gender choice. And this is one of those legacy things that can happen inside a company that like it got instituted a long time ago because your healthcare company makes you ask these questions and nobody looks at it. Right. And you don't, it's not from any necessarily malicious intention. It just like, didn't, nobody's been looking at it for a while. So sometimes it's like very fixable things. And other times it has to do with really understanding attitude shifts. One company that like didn't really think their team's, had a relationship to or cared a lot about um, like immigration issues in the country because it didn't necessarily directly impact them. But no, it turned out that there was a growing faction inside the company that felt like the company's silence on um, ICE raids, for example, or sanctuary cities, for example, was starting to be a, a, a like a business detriment. And it led to that company starting to make some public statements. Wow. So, it, it's, um, it happens in, in ways sort of small and large. And then there's the like less tangible piece, which is like reporting on team dynamics, reporting on trust and leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the sorts of things that we also start to measure, um, psychological safety measurements, 
right? How yep. safe do I feel at work to like push back on my boss or to fail and not get fired? Yeah. Um, and these are things that are universal. It's not like just women should feel this way. It's like everybody should feel these elements of psychological safety in their workplace. Right. Um, I think one of the biggest myths I hope we can eventually dispel is that there's somehow a difference between a professional person and a person. Hmm. You know, like everybody's like, well, you know, you don't cry about it in the workplace. You don't have feelings in the workplace. And I'm like, you're right. Nobody has really strong feelings about their workplace. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The place they spend almost all their time. Literally, you will spend more time with your coworkers than your primary partner in your lifetime, which like, let's talk about that system at some point. Maybe not this year. Maybe this year is the one year that it's been different. Um, But like, generally speaking, you spend more time with your coworkers than your primary partner. Like, I kind of think you should love them Mm, or at least love working with them. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And it's like a radical idea, which is a mess. A yeah. radical, well, a radical both. common sense idea, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes too much sense. Wait a yeah. second. For sure. Man, well, what's so neat to see just even in, in your story, right? You mentioned earlier that all of our all of these events conspire to where we are today, right? Like it's really cool to see first your background with your dad in business and that blending with the experience and the passion you have for art and story and culture right and because sometimes sometimes it seems like the barrier is the inability to understand the other right Mm -hmm. so let's say you're just professional quote unquote and you don't really understand what what you know music movies storytelling is trying to do and its place in the the world and then let's say you're you're you know you are a creative but you don't know how to get it to scale you don't know how to even they would never even think about are there measurables that would matter to the business that we could track that would be a win-win scenario right so instead of just checking the box like we did the right thing but saying hey this might also be overall beneficial for what you are trying to do anyways so it's really neat to see that kind of combination and i'm curious going back to i guess it was 2010 when it sounds like you were putting a lot of time and energy into uh, this creative realm, were you still doing both? Was there a moment of saying, hey, this is what I'm doing full time? Like, what did that look like for you to jump into this world more fully? Um, I think I had four jobs back then. So I was was working with my dad at Best Partners. I was waiting tables. Uh, I, it was, I waited tables for 17 years. And to me, like that's, it's like a drug a little bit. Is mm. there something so reliable about it that I was very loath to give it up. And I was actually in the restaurant wearing the apron and the tie when I got my first investment check in Seed and Spark. Mm. And I can remember kind of like, sort of, I, I think I actually like slid down a wall, <laughs> you know, like in the back, like, yeah. oh, should I really have to go build this thing now? <laughs> you know? Um, wow. uh, and I continued to wait tables for, for some time. Cause I didn't, I didn't obviously pay myself for a while. I was doing voiceover. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I had like some odd, odd job consulting jobs as well along the way. Um, and then I was producing theater, which didn't make any money. Like that's absolutely a labor of love. Um, uh, and that was kind of always how I was like through my twenties, um, with the exception of the couple of years that I was general managing restaurants, 
um, I, I always had what I have come to learn is called a portfolio career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think why Seed and Spark works for me and why I've been able to do this for almost a decade, the longest I've ever had any job, right? Like why I've been able to do this for a better part of a decade is it does feel something like a portfolio career, right? Um, And uh, I remember when I actually finally left the restaurant, um, Anita Lowe was the chef that I was working for back then said, you know, you'll, you'll always have a job here. And it meant so much to me. And then that restaurant closed, sadly, as part of this spate of, um, you know, what's the decimation of old New York. Um, And I was like, oh, shit, I really better make this work now. (laughs) Man, it's so interesting. The the story of you getting the, the, uh, I don't know, it was an email or what that let you know that you'd gotten email check, right? Yeah. And you're you're still working uh, tables. It made me think of Elizabeth Gilbert's story when she found out from her publisher that Eat, Pray, Love had taken off. And she was actually like at a flea market selling things that she had always done as like her, you know, consistent kind of reliable income. And she yeah. said even for years, yeah. uh, she still did that almost like, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why this is taking off. And she almost didn't want to put pressure on her art at first. And yep. it was like, I can keep doing this right until it took off enough that it kind of demanded more of her time. Uh, did you feel that some almost like this? I don't want to put too much pressure on this creative side of me or this art side of you, or was it always, Hey, once this thing gets rolling, I I feel great about jumping in. I had no sense of what I was getting into. If I'm perfectly honest, like I had read the books I did that. I read, you know, um, the lean startup and, and stuff, but I was not in a community of entrepreneurs. I was in the New York art scene. I was not in San Francisco, even though that's where I am from. Um, And I found myself calling friends of mine who had been in tech in San Francisco being like, what, what is this? Like, what am I, what is to help me out here? Like, here's my idea. Here's the direction I'm going to take it. And my, my approach is always like research. I'm always, always just calling the experts, asking them lots of questions, like building relationships so that I have someone I can call being like, you did this before. What do I do now? Right. Like I, that's, that's kind of always been my approach. Um, uh, I really, really did not have a sense of what this would mean. Mm. Um, and so for because honestly, I found a notebook recently somewhere. I just moved and I, I unearthed a notebook that was the notebook that I had while all of this was going on. Wow. And um, it said, I, I found a page that said, you can only do three things. And my number one thing was like, you know, basically pay your bills. And under mm-hmm. that, there were four jobs listed, right? <laughs> and number two was like the, you know, the art. And now I'm going to make like the, was like the water, was making the film like the water. And there were like 10 things. I like finished fundraising for the film, you know, supervised post, like huge undertakings. And then the third thing was building this production company, which was going to have a theater arm and a film arm. And then this little maybe tech startup-y thing that I was thinking of doing, right? That was the bottom on a list of three things that was actually 15 things um, because I was so trained in the sort of like portfolio-ness of my existence. Um, I didn't understand the kind of focus it was going to take. And it fortunately, I think for me, kind of took took on a life of its own and very much became a place I could focus because I was getting response from the community that this was the direction to go. But I, I credit an investor that I approached 
Um, and I said, Hey, I'm raising money for this production company. It's going to have a theater arm and a film arm. And then it's going to be this like independent wish list based crowdfunding platform. Uh, Rose was super specific about it back then. Um, and she was like, you can only do one of these things. Mm. You're gonna have to pick one and then come back to me. Um, and I picked seed and spark and the rest is history. Did you immediately resonate with that or did that take some, some kind of mulling over? No, I was so resistant. Yeah. Yeah. I was so resistant to that, but, um, but it was, uh, I mean, in some senses I was incredibly fortunate in my twenties to get to play as much as I did in Mm. all of these different spaces. Um, you know, I like, I, I have to say like, I credit just like, I don't know what people are doing now, like in the pandemic, when you can't really wait tables for a living, because I know that that's, that's the kind of existence that has supported so many people in building their dreams. And I really credit, like, I'm just a good waiter. Mm. And that helped me do a lot of things that I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, and ultimately also, I do think that working in service should be compulsory. Yeah. Um, you you should have to work for tips at some point in your life. Yes. Uh, Totally agree. Living, gotta have, you gotta live a restaurant life, at least a little bit in your life for sure. It's interesting. I feel like we're we're talking about the stereotypes. I'm about to be a Southern male talking about sports, but, uh, so that makes, but great. Yeah. So there's this interesting, I was, I was watching a documentary on on a plane, uh, going on my own little consulting gig. And it was about these great athletes and their progression towards being a great athlete. Specifically, it was talking about Wayne Gretzky and they were interviewing Wayne Gretzky's dad. So Wayne Gretzky, famous uh, hockey player. I do actually know who Wayne Gretzky is. Yes. He's (laughs) got to be one of the ones, you know, he's, he's, there's like 10 you need to know. And Wayne's one of them. (laughs) So Wayne Gretzky, uh, his dad's talking about his, like, I guess, training Wayne as he's grown up to become a great hockey player. And what you would expect is like, well, Wayne probably grabbed a stick when he was two and then only focused on hockey at all to be like the best hockey player ever. And while he did start playing hockey when he was young, he did all these cross disciplinary things and he never really made him focus too much on it. He did all these other things and he worked out to be okay. When it was the time to focus, then he was a very, you know, he was very uh, adaptable or he just had this cross disciplinary skill that was able to be applied and focus. And when I hear about you in your twenties and all of these different things, when it was time to focus, I made that choice because even as we've, we've already heard you talk about it, like uh, seed and spark couldn't be what it is, or even the, the things you've talked about couldn't be what those things are without you choosing. I'm going to do it all for like yeah. a decade. Like um, it's impossible. I'm immediately changing my Twitter bio to the Wayne Gretzky of startups. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to be like, Jordan Mitchell says I'm the Wayne Gretzky of startups. Yes. Hey, take it. It's not bad. It's not bad. Um, no, it awesome. is. It is fascinating though, Jordan, like just how that opinion or I guess observation has, has even changed because, you know, I grew up playing sports as well and it was the common opinion that you should specialize as early as possible. Like I remember, like being in tears because my coach told me I had to pick between this sport or this sport. And I was like in fifth grade. And he was like, yeah, seriously. He was like, if you're going to be good, you have to commit to this because it's year round or this, you can't do both. And that was the opinion. Like that's how you get better. But now the data is in that there's examples of that, like Tiger Woods, but for everybody else, there is seen and unseen benefits 
to a variety of experience. And I, I imagine the same is in the work world, like where there's idea of pick your track, stay on your track forever used to be the predominant way of thinking about moving through life. And now there's starting to be this kind of awakening to like, well, hold on. There's something about a little bit of a walkabout where, where you get to try your hand at this and try your hand at that and get in this culture and get in that culture and, and kind of give yourself time to grow and expand and learn. And then it, it opens up possibilities for focus later, but everybody's afraid, right? That if I do that, I'll lose opportunities. That's right. I I would also argue there's a couple of other forces at work that I think are important to consider. Because now when you say that, I think about how we hire at Stevens Park. We always talk about, like, I don't care about unicorn companies. I care about, like, unicorn team members. Mm. And to me, a unicorn is somebody that has that, like, breadth of experience and interest that's going to bring that dynamism to the team. And we've been very lucky that pretty much everybody, you know, everybody on our team is both creative and has, you know, their various professional aptitudes that help make them, um, like the experts that we need. Um, and, uh, I also think it's important to think about actually the role that bias plays. Sure. Um, in sometimes forcing people into roles and the really enterprising ones will learn what they need to learn there. Right. Mm even if they don't have the title that they want, even if they don't have the, they're not getting yeah. the, the, you know, the interplay, like they will find a way, right? And so when I think about, like when we put together job descriptions, I'm always really careful about things like how many years in a certain role you get, because sometimes there are invisible, very stupid forces at work that have kept people from having that kind of role for a certain period of time. Sure. The ones who really want that role have been finding ways to learn it wherever they are. Yep, and that yeah. I think is like, um, it gives you an opportunity to like, to meet people and also develop them professionally in the direction they really want to go. If you're yeah. open to the ways in which that really varied life can help. I mean, I think there's so many rules that we have set around how things are supposed to go in order to make them good that are just fundamentally wrong. And it's, it's so that we can create some sort of standard or replicability, um, yeah. But then I'm sure you guys are noticing, like, are any two stories from this podcast remotely the same? <laughs> right. Right. So what replicability are we talking about? Really? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. It is. That is really good. We've definitely yeah. seen, I will say this, definitely not as a pushback, more just thinking out loud as we're talking. Yeah. We've definitely seen themes. Sure. Right? In my mind are kind of like ancient stories and parables, Right where you almost do find this like universal language sometime that are in common, but they're broad enough and you can, they don't have to apply at all times and all places to all people. Right. Absolutely. They're just more themes. Not one of them is seven years at a top tier consultancy. Not right. Or uh, attendance, uh, MBA from, uh, you know, Harvard, like none of those is part of the theme. Yeah. It, has, it has to do with usually curiosity. Yes. Right. A certain amount of stubbornness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Courage. Um, yeah. Like a stick to itiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think, I think generally speaking, we are, we are being silent on something that's too important. If we don't examine the role of privilege in the ability to be an entrepreneur and build a company, 
Um, I think there are so many examples of entrepreneurship that don't get this kind of treatment because mm -hmm. they haven't had access to the resources that I, I had access to. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't have a, a, a big investor network to just tap. Um, but I did have high school friends who went to Berkeley at exact in exactly the right year who then went on to go to Google and Facebook mm -hmm. in those early years and were able to coach me. And that in and of itself was a huge resource, sure. right? That had to do with like growing up middle-class in Sacramento and going to a top tier public high school, which means sure. the property taxes were good. And, you know, and it's like yeah. all of these things are elements of, of these kind of, um, of this kind of privilege. And I think um, starting to look at what is um, thematic, around like the personal conviction, I think is super interesting. Um, and also starting to look at entrepreneurship in, in like in a, in a broader scope. Yeah. Um, because I do think there are entrepreneurs absolutely everywhere. Um, and some of it, it is just like a willingness, like a, a desire to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In yeah, spite of obstacles. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's that's definitely a um, it's definitely a requirement in the entrepreneurial journey. Is that at some point you have to be uh, uh, one of the ways I described it was it felt like for me at times I was having a staring contest with the universe to see who would blink first, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So it's like it just keeps throwing shit my way, and I keep staring back like I'm not gonna blink. Like you're gonna you're gonna blink first. Something's gonna give before I give, right? Uh, and then the other. It seems like people, because there's all kinds of entrepreneurs, those that you would say were born born with it, always represented it, and others like me that I don't think I was necessarily born with it, but where my life led, it led me into it, and I said yes, but it does seem to be this common theme of seeing a better way. Mm. Like the, in an industry, in a practice, in a culture, where they're like, I think there's a better product or service or message, or I think there's a better way that seems to really ignite uh, entrepreneurial kind of thinking, Right. Um, and you have certainly done that. I mean, we could have an hour long podcast about each of the major dominating issues that we are facing today that is so amazing. Um, so it makes me happy that you're doing that, that it doesn't rest on this podcast, right? That, that's actually the whole work of what you guys are doing. Yeah. Uh, but I am curious, it's something that I think would be in common with all of the people listening here. And that's the transition that you had to make from an idea, that idea working yeah. to now you having to lead this thing, right? Like you were having to lead people, you're hiring people, you're organizing them, you are leading yourself and dealing with the stress of life and work and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just curious if you could take us a little bit into that. Like what has been maybe some of the biggest challenges for you, mm -hmm. kind of putting that new hat on uh, of leader of a company and maybe what have been some of the biggest breakthroughs and lessons that, that, that you've learned in, in terms of leading yourself and leading others? Oh my God. Uh, so 2020 was a really hard year to be a leader. It was a really hard year to be a person, full stop. True. 2020 was a really hard year to be a leader. Um, and, uh, you know, when the company started, I've always, I've always been an organizer of people. It's why when I found producing, I was like, oh, there's a place for me in the world. Mm. That like a business person who likes creative things the thing I like most in the world is introducing people who can be helpful to each other. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right? Like that's always been a thing I love to do the most. And because I've had this weird, varied life, I've met a lot of people doing a lot of different things. So I think I can make 
kind of uniquely interesting introduction sometimes. Um, and, uh, but I've stopped trying to be a matchmaker. I realize that's a bad use of that. Never, <laughs> yeah. never keep friends that way. Like a, um, like a love matchmaker or yeah, yeah. I gotta okay. not do that anymore. Professionally. I'm amazing at it. Good. Otherwise I'm not doing it anymore. Um, <laughs> I have higher hopes, I guess. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I think the, um, the piece for me in the beginning was I just gathered kind of the group of friends that I thought had the most complimentary skill set, and we started working on this thing. Um, and then, as it became like a real professional structure, you sort of started to see the cracks in that as a as a thesis for mm -hmm. organizing. And one was really just the diversity of the team, right? We spent a couple of years like really not being a very diverse team. There were a lot of women. Um, but being really a pretty homogenous team across like age, gender identity, like all of the pieces. Um, and it was, it's that again, is just sort of a replication of privilege. Like who's able to take a job for basically nothing in mm -hmm. like just after the other side of a, the worst economic recession in history, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. A small subset of people. Um, and so realizing over time, I had to be deeply intentional about the way I formulated the team and that my network couldn't be the be all end all of actually building this team. If I really wanted it to challenge me, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and bring in experience and expertise that, that challenged, I mean, that challenged mine yeah. in an important way. I will say, so this year is the first year. I hired a, a, a real for real head of operations with an mm. incredible resume and a CFO. And those were jobs that I had been doing in addition to my job of like CEO and sort of lead sales. Oh, and we hired a VP of sales. Those were all jobs I had been doing under one. Wow. Right? We, I had been scrappy. And here's when having had a portfolio career is not an advantage because I was too used to being in the weeds. Yep. And I became the big blocker. Yep to our growth. Mm -hmm. And it was never clearer than in 2020 when we got yanked into this brand new marketplace where to be honest, like I am not an expert, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, I, but I needed to build the team around me that could create that expertise. Um, I'm what I am an expert in is the vision, right? That that where that out there over the horizon thing that we're going for, um, and now my job is to put the actual experts in place and mostly get the fuck out of their way. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, and um, and where I do continue to really press on alignment is the kind of company I want to build, how I want it to feel mm -hmm. to work at Seed and Spark. Um, but, but given all the things that I have to do to get us there, fundraising, right? I have to be super focused on fundraising. I have to be super focused on business building. We're, we're working on relationships with academic institutions. There's some like very high level strategic objectives that are really mine to undertake. And now that we're a team of 17, 18, pretty soon to be 2022, the day-to-day -day of making sure that that culture really gets manifest in the company, I need help. I can't, I can't do it, right? I can't, and I can't neglect it and expect it to take care of itself no matter right. how well I hire. Right. And so um, it's interesting, like I had an interesting conversation with an investor recently who were like, I think it's weird that you're hiring someone in an, you know, head of operations position right now. And I was like, well, let me talk to you about how much I care about the culture of this company. And yeah. I was actually able to open up and have a really honest and frank conversation about how I don't want to do this if we just build another fucking startup that burns through people. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the, yeah. the revolution externally is not going to happen from a company that just does the same shit that every other company does. Right. We have to find a different way. Yeah. Uh, and we're constrained, right? We're constrained by the forces of capitalism. Like people need jobs and they need to feel valued for their work. And like, they need to be able to buy the things that, and feed their families. Um, but there are things that we really can do differently, but not without really earnest attention that I can't mm-hmm. give while I am meeting all those other demands that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, so to me, at every step, it really has to do with the intentionality and the self-examination. So the best piece of advice I was ever given was very early on by a guy who built a bunch of companies in Silicon Valley. Um, and he said to me, I was on the phone, I'll never forget this. I was driving from Los Angeles up the five to Silicon Valley to like take a mm. bunch of meetings. And he said to me, to scale your company is to scale yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And damn if I don't think about that almost every day. <laughs> yeah. That I'm like, oh God, just in the moment where I'm like, I can't, I can't grow anymore. I can't think anymore about it. Like I can't change, I can't learn any more things. It's all in there. Um, especially now that I'm, you know, I have small kids and that learning curve is its own, you know, beast. Um, but that's probably one of the most important piece of, pieces of advice that I've given is like, if you can't scale yourself, your company can't scale. And so I have to look at my own feelings of resistance and overwhelm and reflect that that has to be resistance and overwhelm that's being felt throughout the company. Yeah. Um, so and good. that's brutal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Man, we see that. We see that every day. So I don't even know if you know our background, but we, we're coaches for fast growing companies and less on like the business strategy side and more on the people development side. Right. And that is one of the things, again, a theme that we see over and over again is how unaware we often are of not just the leader, but everyone in the, in the organization having to grow with the company that it's like a symbiotic relationship, right? As it grows up, so must we grow up to keep rising to the demand or the pressure or the opportunity, you know, like we have to keep growing with it. And one of the things we see is what got you here often doesn't get you there. And those are really hard lessons, right? So like for a while, you being in the weeds was part of what got you there, right? That's you being scrappy. That's you saving resources for the company by doing sweat equity, that kind of thing. But then you get to a place where that actually keeps you, like you said, it's almost like a choke point that keeps the company from going beyond that. And it feels weird, but it's still you growing and developing. But this time it's through learning how to delegate, right? By learning how to empower someone to do that position so that you can focus on your highest and best, right? And I will say part of what changes is your phase in life, right? When I was a early 30-something single living alone, um, I could make decisions about how little resources that I was living on. Right. But I get married and I have kids and now there are real demands on my life that mean like I also need more resources. I need to be compensated fairly for my work if I'm going to keep doing this and feel okay about it. Yes. And that's a really hard thing because um, very much like artists are told, basically, you'll sacrifice everything for your work. You know, mm-hmm. if you love what you do, you shouldn't need to get paid for it. Right. We, do that, we do that to leaders too. We do that yeah. to startup CEOs, right? And 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 then the CEOs turn and do it to their executive team. And it creates actually, I think, a really toxic environment over time. Like you have to find a way to contextualize where you are in the resources development, get everybody on board and getting you to the next phase and making sure you're compensating everyone, including yourself, fairly along the way. 
Because like, yeah. there's a point at which like my husband is just not going to buy the argument anymore. <laughs> right. You're right. Like, no, we need to be able to buy a house someday. Like we have to be able to do something, you know, like, Oh yeah. We can't, we can't all be laying sacrifice to the seed and spark gods every year, year after year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. Yeah, that's we that's a real that. conversation in the McClure household. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. But I also think the thing that's helped those conversations, Drew, you mentioned this back in the day, but was making that decision that I won't sacrifice my family on the altar of my business ventures. Or it's not even my business ventures because the way you're actually talking about is like my dreams. My yeah. dreams. Yeah. My personal dreams. Like the things that we we chose to do is the things that we dreamt about doing. Not necessarily, And it wasn't a job. It just happened to not be a job. Yeah. Um, but we're not, we're not going to make that sacrifice. And that has been helpful for forcing those conversations of, how is everybody being taken care of on the backside? Um, Cause we are committed to the vision, committed to the purpose, but what's going on. That is actually the stuff that could get you is the underlying stuff. You don't actually want to talk about in the day to day, but you it have might, to. it might cause you to feel like you have like a nostril above water. Right. And so you have you or your people showing up to work, trying to be creative, trying to be resilient. And they literally feel like they have a nostril above water, which again, right now, more than any time, with 30 something percent of businesses going under in 2020, you're going to be feeling that to a massive degree. Yeah. And there is no way to do this, right? So that's like my philosophy. It's not even like you should, everyone should have this, this philosophy. But what works for me and my wife is I gave her what I call a ripcord policy or permission, which is, hey, I know we're going for something here, right? Like we're free falling to a degree. Uh, but if at any point you say it's too much because we're a partnership, you can pull the ripcord at any time. And that means I'll go take something that's more traditionally safe or find a, a better, and, and this will be a side project until it's ready or that kind of thing, right? Um, and so we just had to keep having that conversation mm. of saying, how do we feel? Yeah. Do, we, do we want to, does it still feel like it's working? Do we want to go into one more month, six more months, one more yeah. year until it finally started to turn around? Mm. Um, but it's so curious just seeing even you go through that personal development, go through that awareness really is what it is, right? It's, it's a self-awareness of who I am, the situation I'm in, what the company needs. And I'm just curious if there are any other things involved in that journey for you that you look back on now, or maybe you're learning right this moment mm -hmm. as saying like, wow, this was so needed or necessary. And now it might be uh, you learning how to show up ready to rock every day, mm -hmm. right? Like how do you handle stress, pressure? How do you, re you know, rejuvenate yourself, uh, it could be something along the lines of maximizing your strengths and what do I do with my weakness? Like, are there yeah. any other things that come to mind to you that have been really game changing? Um, well, I, I mentioned this before, but I am, I'm a relationship builder. That's my strength. And mm -hmm. so I'm constantly building new bands of expertise around myself. Right. I'm, I'm constantly reaching out to people I don't know. Um, and sitting down and having a real like long conversation with them and asking questions and, and really trying to engage with their learnings. Um, and, uh, realizing that like that, that got me so far in sort of an informal capacity. And then over time, I really needed to formalize it. And I needed to give my executive team access to those networks. Mm. Right. So I was building these incredibly powerful networks and I was really educating myself and I would come back with like a shit ton of conviction about something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and because I've learned it from all these experts and like, blah, blah, blah. And then I walk into exec meeting and like, they have these questions about it. 
And I'm like, right, because you did not just go on the journey that I went on and you're completely legitimate in having all these questions about how I arrived here and why am I so sure, Mm -hmm. right? So how do I bring that kind of expertise building, that kind of professional development into the executive team at this phase of the company? So we've restructured our... um, the way that I, I've like much more formalized my approach to advisors where it's not just like someone I can call because like I've made friends with them and they've been like, yeah, I'd love to help you. Sure. Um, but like, here's some equity in the company and here's an agreement to what kind of um, time we want from you and also exposure to the rest of the executive team. And that's something that we're building this year. Cause I realize like uh, part of the reason that I can sound so decisive and definitive is because I like my approach is I just go out and really inform myself and get to the place where I feel like really a high level of conviction around stuff. But I can't just walk in now sounding expert at a thing that a week ago I was not fucking expert at. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and then and my team just has to like accept that from me. Um, so that's been a big, a big piece of it. Um, and that 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 is a, a capacity that I have that is that is my it's sort of it's it's not unique to me, but it is a unique strength of mine. For and sure. And handing that off takes a lot more, as I said before, like intentionality around how we can how we can give that to the team and really help them develop in that way. Mm. Um, the other thing I was thinking of is is about instinct, um, which is really hard to talk about because I feel like learning to listen to your instinct is its own growth process, but then informing it, right, mm. so that you don't get sort of entrenched in certain ways of thinking yeah. that you think are your instincts, but actually are just habits. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. And that's really challenging. So I'll give you an example. So March, 2020 revenue goes to zero. Um, we were already prior to the shutdowns thinking about what COVID would mean to our business. And our team did a tremendous amount of really smart thinking Um And so we were like mid transition already when the shutdown started and all the stuff started collapse. Like we had a strategic session um, where we sort of wrote all the ways in which we thought COVID could impact our business. And we looked Mm -hmm. at it and we're like, we're going to be out of revenue in two weeks. Mm -hmm. Question to me that like two weeks from now we got nothing. Um, And so we were lucky that we were already, we were like a a little bit ahead of it. Um, And so I could prime my investors and raise a little bit of bridge. Like I started the application process for relief. Um, But uh, I I reached out to a couple of like really smart startup people about how they would manage during this time. And they're like, you just have to cut the team down to as small as you possibly can and go into survival mode. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, no, not no, no, yeah. You want me to cut two thirds of my team loose in the worst downturn in history? That's your advice? Yeah. That's the best you got is like, fuck them, save the company. What do you think the company is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I went to the team and I was like, and I, I, I sort of, I talked to, then I started talking to a bunch of people and I went to the team and I was like, there's two ways this can go as I see it right? We can go the draconian capitalist way and cut down to basically zero and save the company, or we can save each other and we can cut everything 30% across the board. And everybody yeah. was like, great, let's cut 30% across the board. So everybody took 30% pay cuts across the board. And we, yeah. we had to, we ate those austerity measures for a long time this year. And we're, we're only now back to 90% 
Um, mm-hmm. and we'll get wow. back to hundred percent by the end of this month. But, um, but I, I thought a lot about conventional wisdom in yeah. unconventional moments. Mm. And it's only because I've been doing this now for eight years that when someone said that to me, I was like, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And I know you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and like you're informed by a tradition that I don't subscribe to anymore. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think is really um, a huge challenge in navigating crisis. Yeah. Is that we, we really have a tradition of treating companies as if they exist without their people. Um, especially earlier stage companies. Yep. Um, and there are a few like crazy examples, right? Gumroad, um, where Sahil was able to cut basically all the way down to himself and then stealthily grow it back to a certain direction. But like, that is not the, that is not the, um, the common experience. Yeah. Right? Yep. Usually when you cut the team all the way down to zero, it's over. Mm. it's over we never could have found this new opportunity and so we went to zero revenue we pivoted all of our efforts to really Mm. trying to expand this film forward program we did seven hundred thousand in revenue in q3 of 2020 wow yeah right and that was because the entire team was like let's fucking do and and there was no other way we could have done it and yes there were giant uh like social things that we happened to hit in just the right moment, but it was because the team was really informing each other, right? Mm -hmm. And we were informing each other's instincts and decisions and we were staying really true to our values um, that we were able to capitalize on that opportunity, but not for the bodies in the room. We never would have been able to do it. If we'd been more people, we would have missed this opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I, I think about that a lot that like, that little voice inside your head in an interview with a a new potential team member where you're like, I didn't love that. That's Mm. all you need to know, in my opinion, Mm, right? When you're listening to something from an advisor and you're like, there's something there that isn't it. You got to go away and get really quiet with it. And it, it, sometimes it's because they're challenging you to think differently. And if you go away and get really quiet and really listen, your instincts will actually tell you, no, that was right. That's what happened with the woman who said, you got to pick one. That's right. right. I was like, no, I don't. And then I walked away and I was like, I totally do. Right. Because there was a little voice inside of me being like, no, this is the thing. Right. Um, And so I think that process is it's, you can't, I don't know how to teach that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I mentor a lot of, 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 uh, baby startups and also I, a lot of peer mentorship. Like I, I'm in a ton of groups of people where we're on similar tracks, right? And we're, we're talking to each other. And generally speaking, I just listen for the moment when they say that really honest thing. They're like, I don't know, it just made me feel X, Y, Z. And I'm like, there it is. Mm. That's the thing. And you just have to train yourself over and over again. And when you're at the top on your own, you don't always, you, you have to find the people who can help you Identify yeah. those for yourself. You got to be yeah. in therapy. You have to be in therapy. You cannot yeah, come on. need a company if you are not in therapy. Yeah. You have to work through your own stuff. Um, I think too, look, I've had the experience multiple times as a woman leader that I have had um, encounters with investors, with employees, with et cetera, where they are working some shit out like with their mom mm. in the conversation. And I'm like... I, this is not about me. <laughs> and, and it's, 
like if you are not spending time figuring out what is and isn't about you, it's really hard to not over identify in those moments. Yeah. I don't want to be anybody's mom. That's not what I'm trying to be. I'm just like, I'm still dealing with the fact that now most of my team is like, oh yeah, that like woman over 40 with kids who's our boss. Like I, the, the amount that that challenges my own sense of self, <laughs> I already yeah. struggle with, but yeah. I just, I feel like that, that piece of like informing your, your instinct and listening to your intuition and that kind of like what a magical human piece of it, you know, yeah, yeah. ginormous ball of nerves near our stomachs for a reason. Yeah. Yes. We, have, we, we, we have a, a part of our intelligence that is not in our brain. Right. That's that emotional intelligence is right. And so I, I had somebody ask me years ago, I don't understand. I hear different, you know, viewpoints of this. Should I trust my heart or should I trust my gut or not? And to me, the answer was, I don't know how grown up is your heart, right? Like Oof. how grown up is your, is your gut? Like, have you, have you worked with it? Have you, have you gone away and listened when it told you something and ask it good questions and let it see its blind spots and let it find when it's listening to, to good wisdom and when it's not right. So should I listen to it or not depends on like how grown up is your heart? Yeah. If your if your heart is still a child, if, if you haven't worked through issues from the past and whatever, it's going to be a very unreliable thing. It doesn't mean it's always wrong, but like a child, it's often going to be short-sighted and overly emotional, right? Yeah. But if you've worked it and you've grown up with it and you've you put time and energy into it, it starts to become a trusted voice in your life, very similar to like Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, right? Like this idea of honed instincts over a period of time where you're not even sure why, but you know that painting is a fake, you know? It's, yeah. It's that kind of thing. But it's, it's hard to tell someone and, and only they can answer like, have I done the work where I think this is a trust and I can look back at the decisions I've made based off of it and see almost the scatter plot of wisdom that, that's come out of, out of working with my gut. Does that make sense? Yes. And this is the part you can teach. You can teach someone how to inform their instincts. Exactly. There are really well-known. So the, the work that I did at Best Partners was scenarios to strategy planning and really building scenarios, building really powerful stories about the future mm. is a way to inform your intuition, right? Yes. Yes. Um, building a very, very diverse team is a way to inform your intuition. Building a very, very diverse advisory board is a way to start to inform your intuition. Making sure you're not reading the same six white dudes on both sides of the table, sorry, but not sorry, Mark. Um, like, and, and taking their opinion as, you know, as uh, like constitutional uh, um, authority. Yeah. yeah, authority, thank you. I told you I was going to lose words at some point. Um, <laughs> uh, you have to inform your intuition very intentionally if you want it to serve you. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a, um, that's a piece you can teach. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like you can teach people how to listen to voices that are not their own. It's part of why I'm so excited about the film forward program. A lot of what we teach is really active listening yep. to perspectives that are not your own. Yep, right. Yeah valuing what someone said when someone says, well, this is my experience of the world. Yep. Right. Um, and, and the extent to which like film and storytelling can be used as a way to inform your intuition and your understanding of the world by walking in someone else's shoes for a little while. Right. right. And right. it's why the conversation about who gets to make shit in Hollywood, who gets to tell the stories, who are the writers writing it? 
who are the actors playing it, it actually matters because it is about how our national consciousness is informing its intuition. For sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so not being intentional about it, just being like, no, give it to the ones who are like the funniest. And you're like, what do you mean by the funniest? Like, who's funny to who? Because like, I don't think punching down is funny. Um, These sorts of things. I just think that that piece you can learn and you can cultivate, but it takes a lot of intentionality and it means oftentimes breaking out of your social group. Sure. Yeah. Um, which depending on your personality type can feel really challenging. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. You, cause even your story talks about it, which uh, a mentor talked about, uh, talked to me about paying attention to that critical counterintuitive moment. And it's that moment that actually you need to have a well-informed gut, which you always go to it, but it's almost like that process of information allows you to continue to challenge yeah. so that you can make the decision to go, ah, oh, you know what? Traditional wisdom says, yeah, you're right. Cut, cut two thirds. Like that's, that's right. Because even for you, your intuition has always been go and seek out the mentors, right? Whether that's to build the network or to build your own, um, you know, information source to just, you know, be able to be more well-informed. Yep. Took that moment where you go, oh, actually, I think this is the counterintuitive moment. I go, no, I think there's a different way. And that is really good to actually getting down to the instinctual level and to go, actually, that one doesn't sit well with me. Like, yeah, this is a time when mentorship is not the best path. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I actually ended up writing an article called The End of Mentorship um, because I I do feel like um, we just never sailed in these waters before. So there ain't no captain out there who can claim some sort of expertise over this moment. Right. Yeah. And that, um, I grew up doing a lot of open ocean sailing. My dad lived on a sailboat in pier 39 Marina for most of my childhood. And, um, when I was 13, we sailed to Hawaii together, just the two of us. And then we did a lot of other open ocean sailing. And one of the things I feel like sailing really taught me is that, um, the weather conditions, the ocean conditions are completely fucking indifferent to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they do care not about care how you feel about them. Yeah. Like that 15 foot swell is not interested in your resistance to it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this year was one of those incredible lessons in the conditions are indifferent to you, right? Yeah. Like yeah. You can believe in wearing masks or not believe in wearing masks. You can die of COVID. Yeah. It is indifferent to how you feel about masks, right? Yeah. You can, uh, uh, you can, you know, believe that things should be going differently. You know, you should believe there should be a higher level of government inter- intervention or not. We are where we are and we, we have to find ways to appropriately resource people to the best of our ability, right? Like yeah. it means like ter- maybe turning your big box philanthropy to mutual aid organizations, right? Like you do have to do things differently if you want to maintain your values in an environment that is completely changed. Mm-hmm. That's and that's a, that's a huge challenge. And unfortunately yeah. this year that has become so life and death, you know, that like, your indifference to the conditions can actually kill people now. Mm. Right? Actually, they always killed people. Um, I would say this country has a history of yeah. our indifference killing people, but um, yeah. but it's just it's it's so raw and real right now. And I yeah. think I really try to pay attention to when I am feeling resistance to conditions that are completely out of my control, mm-hmm. and yeah. figuring out how to work with the ocean 
And I'm, I'm, I think very specifically of this moment, I was 15 years old. We were sailing off of uh, the coast of California in the summer, which can be notoriously rough. And we got caught in a like gale force winds squall. Seas were like 12 to 15 with some of the big ones kind of scrolling up to 20. My dad, I remember he put the like the wind speed thing into the wind. And when he started seeing it peaking over 45, he just put it down. He's like, I don't want to know. Doesn't right. Um, and he was having to be on deck like getting the sail, like wrestling. I was not strong enough at that point to even wrestle the sails down to where they needed to be. I was steering. Yeah. And I, I had never steered in those conditions. I had only read books about steering in those conditions. And all I could remember is you have to work with the swell. Yep. If you try to work against the swell, you will, you will broach the boat, right? You will stick the nose in the, um, in the downside of the swell and you will sink. Yeah. Right. And so the entire time I was just like working with the swell and I did this, I don't know, for some number of hours, right? I was just stuck there steering through this thing for some number of hours, every single swell being like, don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die, work with the swell, work with the swell, work with the swell, right? And you get to the other side and you realize, wow, I've been really cold this entire time. Like there's other things I'm going to have to take care of now that mm. we're outside of these conditions. And I'm out the other side of 2020 and looking into 2021 and realizing it's a much longer haul, right? I remember back in March talking to theatrical distributors who were like, yeah, yeah, we're reopening in July. And I'm like, but are you? Right, right. But are you really? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's going to be a vaccine like in the fall. And I'm like, is there? Is there yeah. really? Right. And I, I because I, I believe powerfully in the indifference of the forces at work. Like as much as you might like them to turn the tide in your direction, it ain't going to happen until it happens. Mm. And so business planning as if it's going to go the way you want it to go is like, good luck with that, you know? Um, And so, so thinking about, you know, been thinking so much about my team and myself and that those white knuckles on the wheel and being so cold for so many hours and like, yes, we're like kind of pulling into port and getting to think about what to do next. But now we got to take care of our bodies. <laughs> we yeah. got to take care of our minds. We got to take care of our families. We got to get something to eat, you know, yep. all of these things. And then go right back out into conditions that are very indifferent to us. Mm-hmm. And like the energy for that, you asked me like, what do I do to restore myself? I don't know yet. I'm still really cold and my knuckles are still white around that wheel. Yeah. Yeah. That was really good. Um, I think that's a great analogy for everybody just thinking about, look, this is the first interview of 2021 and you go, Hey, the implications of 2020 are going to be beyond just figuring out how to continue to sail in a storm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's really good. Well, it's crazy too. Uh, I want to hop into a lightning round. Well, let me just button this up real quick and then we'll do this. Cause this is interesting. You said this, we started noticing that with our team at the end of 2020 was man like we uh, the way we put it was it feels like we're the, we're starting to fight each other instead of the sea right <laughs> yep. like you know something's going on when the sailors are fighting each other instead of fighting the ocean and it's usually because the voyage has been much longer than they expected and they're more tired and hungry and cold than you thought right and so uh, we started jordan and i started focusing on training them on what we call energy management we didn't come up with it. it comes from a book called the power of full engagement and it was so life-giving that it wasn't about tactics or strategy or business. It was literally about how do you recharge and rejuvenate so that you can show up your best, right? 
And then we started teaching our clients that, and it seems to be the thing that like everyone is asking for more of, right? Yeah. So I think we as a country, we as a world, it would make sense at the end of a year like this, that you'd be saying, hey, how do I do this, right? Like, and, and, and more so than ever, I think it exposes uh, our lack of knowledge that like when times are plenty, you're not as in touch with the need to regularly understand and manage your own vitality. But when things are scarce, yep. you are quickly realizing you don't know how to get water. Yep. You don't know how to start your own fire, right? And yep. so you're like, oh, I've got to learn these skills now to like, get me emotionally back to ready and my mentally back mm-hmm. to ready, physically, spiritually, whatever it is. Like, how do I be active in that management and in that recharge, right? Uh, so beautifully said from you. Uh, it's right on par. Again, another theme we've seen across the board for sure. Yeah, that's awesome, Emily. All right, Jordan, take us in, buddy. Yep. I got lightning round questions. I got five questions for you. Just go with your instinct here. Uh, If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Work is not your whole life. Nice. Uh, What is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? I already, I preempted it. To scale your company is to scale yourself. Yes. I probably needed to be said again, right? Um, And the worst? Was to cut the team completely (laughs) to zero. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's it. Uh, number three, what causes you the most worry leading your organization? How to take care of the humans navigating this time. Yeah. Uh, what's your big, hairy, audacious goal right now? What's your BHAG? Uh, I want thousands and thousands of really independent creators being able to shift meaningful power to their communities in the form of revenue and impact through their creative storytelling. Um, and there aren't really clear measurements for that yet. And there aren't, um, I mean, aside from, we can talk about how much money goes to them, but, um, I want to be in the business of being able to demonstrate how this really works in the future. Nice. Uh, number five, if you could hop into DeLorean, you're going to go back to the future here. We're going to go back to the past, tell yourself one thing from the driver's side window as you're flying by, uh, when would you go back and what would it be? You don't have to do anything different. You just have to tell yourself something. <clears throat> the, the only time I ever got a, um, a blue chip VC term sheet, it had absolutely shocking, insulting terms. And my lawyer, who is a really nice person, said, these are the sort of terms where you don't say no, you say go fuck yourself. Mm. And I would go back and I would say, go tell them to go fuck themselves. Yeah. Um, Because I didn't. And I tried to make it nice and sweet and cute. And I really, uh, I I suffered actually a lot for how much I tried to not call a spade a spade. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make it about something else. And I wanted to try to make it work. Yeah. Uh, I know that seems really harsh, but I think you need those moments of power in your career to like rest on, to say, I did that for myself. Yeah. Drop yeah. that conviction. Love that, Emily. So good, Emily, this has been a truly fascinating, um, eye-opening, inspiring conversation. Um, yeah. So fun to get to know you, get to know your intelligence, your heart, uh, but also to know 
I, I mean, I, I saw the social dilemma and was thinking, how the hell do we change this? Right. I'm working on it. It's something, I'm working on it. <laughs> it's something, well, it's something everybody knew, but someone finally demonstrated how it works and whatever. That's like, we're all in echo chambers. You just know that. Right. And so the fact that you guys have even found or have been found, right. Getting pulled into a solution, yeah. which is going directly to companies is so fun and uh, mm -hmm. makes me excited. So thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule as a mom, as a wife, as a leader, um, to come on the podcast and share your, your wisdom with us. It's been truly fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. Founders. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results. Thank you.